Good morning and welcome to Dialogue and Debate. My name's Ed Newell and I'm the Chief Executive here at Cumberland Lodge. If you're unfamiliar with us, we're an educational charity founded in 1947 and we're based in Windsor Great Park, which is looking glorious at the moment. We convene multi-sector conferences, panel debates and retreats that engage people of all ages, backgrounds and perspectives in candid conversations on pressing societal issues. If this is your first time joining us, Dialogue and Debate is our regular series of webinars where we respond to key themes emerging from our own conferences and other work, and also uh, other important topical issues. Last month's webinar on fostering climate resilience explored how we can adapt to climate change in ways that foster social cohesion rather than cause divisions across nations and within communities. We also looked at ways to address the unequal effects of climate change across the UK. And if that's of interest to you, you can watch on demand via the Read, Watch, Listen page on our website or on SoundCloud and other major podcasting platforms. The topic for today's webinar is social cohesion post-lockdown. And I'm delighted to welcome Joe Broadwood, Chief Executive of Belong, the Social Cohesion Integration Network, Dr. Magda Roska, Senior Research Officer at the University of Essex and co-author of Coming Together or Coming Apart, Changes in Social Cohesion During the COVID-19 Pandemic in England, and Professor David Halpern, Chief Executive of the Behavioural Insights Team. Thank you so much for joining us. Those who are participating, if you'd like to submit questions to our panellists uh, at any time throughout the webinar, please use the Q&A function if you're watching live on Zoom, or you can comment on our Facebook live stream. We'll also be live tweeting, and you can submit your views and questions by tweeting at Cumberland Lodge and using the hashtag dialogue debate. Now, to get things going, we'll start as we usually do with a poll. So the question that's gonna pop up on your screen now is this. How do you think the sense of togetherness and solidarity in your local community has changed since the start of the pandemic? Is it reduced, increased, or varied over time? So let's get a sense of the mood of the meeting. So reduce, so it's 19%, 29% increased, 52% varied over time. So maybe we'll uh, get the panelists to comment on those uh, figures as we, as we go along. So we're going to start with Joe. And uh, Joe, you've been undertaking a major research project called Beyond Us and Them, looking at the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on social cohesion. Perhaps you could start by sharing some of the key insights from your research. Thanks very much, Ed, and uh, I'm delighted to be here. So I've, pretty early on in the pandemic, Belong recognised that although there was this incredible kind of community spirit that was being seen up and down the country, there were also some of the fractures and the divisions that had been there before the pandemic were also um, playing a role and we were really interested to investigate and find out what was actually happening to social cohesion so we've since may last year we've been conducting a longitudinal study 
in three politically coherent parts of the UK, so Kent, Wales and Scotland, um, in six local authority areas where there's been a considerable investment in social cohesion. So five of them were a, a part of the MHCLG integration area programme, Calderdale, Peterborough, Warsaw, Waltham Forest and um, Blackburn with with Darwin and Bradford. And then Calderdale the sixth um, isn't part of that programme, but has prioritised kindness and resilience in its strategy. So we've been surveying with them with um, a range of organisations who are involved in volunteering. And we're also now um, surveying in four different metropolitan areas. And I guess what we're really interested in exploring is how is the COVID-19 pandemic affected relations between individuals, communities and the state, and what can we learn in order to strengthen social cohesion and build resilience in the future. Um, so the, new, the news is quite striking really for, for us um, in that in the, in the six local authority areas that have all invested in social cohesion in some way, in June of last year, we were able to report that they were showing greater trust in politicians and other people better connection with family and friends, warmer feelings towards others, including migrants to the UK, and higher levels of neighbourliness and active social engagement than elsewhere. And um, our most recent report in that, that took the data up until December, uh, which if you remember, June to December was a very difficult time, and um, four of those local areas were actually almost in permanent lockdown and, and under very sort of severe restrictions. Um, so despite that, um, in those areas, they had maintained those high levels of cohesion, um, including greater neighbourliness, active social engagement, sustained inclusiveness towards others and had maintained high levels of local trust. And also residents in those areas were twice as likely um, to volunteer compared to other areas. Um, so they're, they're quite sort of striking results, really. And I think you know, our conclusions are that a relatively modest investment in social cohesion can mean considerable benefits locally. And I think we also think that social cohesion is going to play a vital role in tackling some of the challenges ahead as we um, emerge, emerge from the pandemic. Joe, thank you very much indeed. It'd be great to drill down uh, a bit later on, on what's been invested and how it's, uh, and how it's working through. But um, before we get to, to that, we're going to turn now to, um, to Magda. I'm just wondering, Magda, has, has your uh, research uh, come up with similar trends? And how do you think levels of cohesion vary amongst different socioeconomic groups uh, and also regionally? Um, thank you, Ed, and thank you for uh, having me here. Um, so I think um, our study is not directly uh, comparable uh, to the study that Joe was talking about. Um, because we use uh, survey data, uh, which is uh, which which is uh, nationally representative household panel data, understanding society, uh, and we are not able to uh, drill down to localities um, as much uh, as Joe did. Um, and basically, what we are showing um, with my colleague uh, James Lawrence from Manchester. Um, university uh, is that on average, kind of the average person um, saw a decline uh, in uh, social cohesion uh, measured by like five specific 
um, kind of questions that, that we had, which covered uh, some behavioral aspects like talking to neighbors um, and some attitudinal aspect, aspects as um, uh, feeling that other people can be trusted, that they get along with each other and that uh, one is similar to others in the neighborhood. Um, so um, one important thing which actually uh, follows quite closely the poll that we just had is that uh, this perceptions are very fluid. So about like 50% of people change their mind um, from one measurement point to another. Uh, and which is almost exactly what we saw in the poll, like that the um, social cohesion varied over time. And um, so, um, although in the poll, I think there was 10% more, 10 percentage points, more people who thought that the perception of cohesion increased in our study, uh, we saw like 17 percentage points on average people, um, like net negative change, if you like. And so people said that the um, social cohesion in their area decreased. Um, however, uh, in more recent data um, from November 2020, um, which I had a chance to look at from the same survey, um, the level of cohesion already increased, although not to the pre-pandemic level. Uh, but it kind of suggests that it, it is temporal, so people do change their mind. Um, and uh, there will be another wave, which actually came out, came out a couple of days ago, but I didn't have a chance to look at it yet, uh, which will show us the levels of social cohesion measured in March 2021. So that would be a good chance to see whether, um, yeah, now we uh, see the reverse trend or kind of the levels of social cohesion stabilized. Um, but in terms of um, the differences between different social groups and different um, regions, um, so we saw uh, a greater decline um, among more disadvantaged uh, communities uh, as measured by index of multiple deprivation, um, as well as um, those people with uh, lower skills, certain ethnic minority groups as well, uh, which generally um, closely followed other findings um, uh, related to um, inequalities or who suffered more during the pandemic. So the similar groups uh, tended to also experience a greater decline in mental well-being or uh, suffer greater um, uh, like economic um, vulnerability. Um, and um, maybe another uh, thing that I would like to mention in relation to ethnic minorities, uh, which I think is quite important, although we didn't do any causal analysis, um, but uh, people who reported uh, first of all, ethnic minorities reported uh, uh, increase in um, ethnic and racial harassment, which actually matches some of the police uh, records as well. And those people were twice as likely to uh, report decline in uh, perceived social cohesion. Um, so I think uh, there might be things related to both vulnerabil vulnerability um, and um, um, 
yeah, greater negative consequences in other areas of life uh, that could affect how people feel about their local neighborhood, as well as direct experiences of, for example, um, racial harassment, which I, I want to stress, I don't think they contradict all the um, great responses that we saw in many communities and like um, um, a lot of uh, like solidarity and initiatives. Um, I just I just think that this kind of like survey evidence that shows like what average person thinks is showing some, something slightly different. Thank you, Magda. That's really interesting to get that sort of more broader picture, as it were. Um, and again, we'll come, come back to that. Um, David, moving on to a rather specific question. Um, how do you think we can ensure that health and social inequalities are minimised as we reach the end of the government's current roadmap for easing restrictions, uh, particularly in view of the vaccine rollout in the UK and indeed internationally? Um, right. Well, we want to have a go at that, but also just to respond a bit, maybe in the spirit of discussion, to what we heard so far. And, and sorry, I was a moment later, I apologize for, for stress that may have caused you. Um, so just to go back one step, maybe it's useful to do is why is it so important and stuff? And in Whitehall, often people talk about it with rhetorical flourishes about, you know, why it matters. But um, I used to do a lot of work, actually, work with Bob Putnam in, um, in the US and wrote a book on social capital a number of years ago. It is incredibly consequential um, how you feel about your fellow neighbours, the so-called social capital variables as classically measured, like, do you think other people can be trusted and so on? Do you, how do you connect with other people? Of course, it has huge impacts on your well-being. It literally affects how long you're going to live. Um, it's quite differentiated by socioeconomic background and elsewhere. It also has impacts on um, educational attainment. It has impacts on fear of crime and to some extent crime itself. It has impacts on governance. The effectiveness of government actually was much more important in relation to COVID and elsewhere. It's not whether you trust government, it's whether you trust your fellow citizen, right? It's, it's, it's are your fellow citizens gonna wear the mask and act responsibly? That's much more important to affecting your own behavior and your feeling than what's happening up in the government. Um, and it even affects economic growth. Actually, it's a huge impact on economic growth. If you think other people can be trusted, it changes what you do in lots of domains. It means that you, you don't need a lawyer every time. You have a, you know, an agreement. You can just shake hands if you trust people. It means that information flows through your economy. It means that you employ the best person for the job, not your cousin. So it is genuinely true that this sort of social capital stuff and cohesion is unbelievably important and it, and it almost certainly doesn't have the profile that it merits, given that's the case. So forgive me, just going a bit broader for a minute, but I, I want to say why I personally think it's really important and, and it's, it's underbaked. Um, in relation to the story about what's happened, by the way, in the last year or so, you've heard two kind of contradictory stories. I think because they, what seems to have happened in your question, um, have you had increases, decreases, or varied? Actually, like all of those things have happened, particularly, of course, the varied as people have detected. So when you look at multiple sources, um, I think we have a pretty clear kind of emergent story, which is early on in March, you got a surge on lots of measures. If we come with just a simple thing, look at Google search terms for volunteering. You get this astonishing spike, unprecedented requests and interest and goodwill and that flood of people who came forward. Hmm. Or subtle measures as well as the kind of the harder survey measures. One that Bob Putnam has used in recent years, certainly in US data, is the ratio of the word we to I or me. It's changed over literally about 100 years, particularly in the US, it's very pronounced. We say I and we more and more, 
particularly in the US, you see it very pronounced. When we say we less, it's been happening for a long time. But at the beginning of COVID, actually, you saw a significant, like just literally, if you just search for we, we goes up, we goes up for this period. Um, so something happens in March where people really kind of connect and they have a sense they're going through a common experience, right? And even though their well-being is dropping on happiness and so on, actually, they feel like we're in it together. By the summer, that's decayed away, actually. And ironically, it may also be when you start to shift and, and get rid of some of the measures that were in place, you are then really relying on trusting your fellow citizen. And you're not completely sure as to whether you can or can't trust them mm. and other things that occur. It then sees some recovery again in this later period. And then coming back finally to your question, what can we do about it? Well, a lot will depend on, um, as uh, Magda kind of said, in, we're not quite sure how to interpret everyone else's behavior. And are we going to think this is, a, you know, in our own neighborhood, our lives, where we came together and had a good positive experience and supported each other, or actually did it come apart? And in Joe's examples, what we're likely to see is some neighbors, you know, neighbors did come together and support, and you'll be left with quite a positive sort of afterglow. And in other ones, you may feel like actually people let me down, you know, in a, or hopefully a minority, and that will be your lasting impression. But the big thing I would say, you know, I've made the parallel to Olympics and all the rest of it, where everybody felt good for a period or whatever. And there were things like, you know, do it or whatever. The infrastructure wasn't put in place to really make the goodwill bit run forward. And what for sure is if you're a behavioral scientist, one of the canons you always look for is changes occur when behaviors get disrupted, right? They can get reset. They don't necessarily go back to where they were before. And that's a big choice for us all, both individually and collectively. And one of the challenges becomes, well, how do we make it easy, right, to connect and support? And it's actually quite difficult, right? It's actually quite difficult to think, if I would like to volunteer or help someone, how do I know who that person is or what that need is, right? How do I express the good stuff in a way that I can still control, regulate social interaction, as opposed to the bad aspects of neighboring? And it's not a trivial matter. And I'll just make this one last point. You know, there's some good things that have occurred, but what will also have occurred in some areas, and you can see it in neighborhood complaints, is that many people, your exposure to your neighbors would be a positive one, but your neighbors are also uniquely placed to annoy you, right? So statistically, yes, there's a relationship between having people who support you live closely, but the people you most hate in the world are also the ones who live close to you, right? Because they're uniquely placed. So the real puzzle, you get back to the good fences make good neighbors, is you have to design a world where it's possible to interact with other people around you in a way which is constructive and positive, but you have to also have ways in which you can still control and choose that for yourself about who you want to spend time with and who you don't. But that mechanic, I think, can be designed. We can use our kind of skill and entrepreneurship to try and figure out better ways of doing that. Maybe it's something we can talk about a bit in the, the rest of our period. Together. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, if we go back to Joe um, and talk about the the investment in social cohesion that's, that she's said is working it'd be great then for david and indeed magda to comment on on that and um, so perhaps we can go back to you joe you, you you spoke powerfully at the beginning about um this investment so what you know what what's the investment been uh yeah absolutely and just to just to say i, I actually don't think that um uh, the research that magda and i are talking about is i don't think our research contradicts each other i think we've actually measured different things in terms of Magda's is based on survey material and ours is based on a whole range of measures from measuring local trust, political trust, um, 
belief in conspiracy theories, compliance with guidelines. I mean, we've our, our measures have, have looked at um, trust in the state and trust between citizens and groups and communities. So I think actually our, our two pieces of research are very complementary. And also our, our research has compared our six neighbourhoods to elsewhere. So, you know, that, that it's, it's a comparative rather than an overall, an overall picture. Um, one of the things that we did with those six areas is we worked with them to look at what had they done, because we were really curious to know what had they done that had, um, uh, you know, helped. And um, I mean, completely agree, agree with David. I think social cohesion is absolutely vital to so many different things. It's, it's vital to the vaccine rollout. It's vital to tackling loneliness. It's vital to tackling sort of economic prosperity. You know, it's the heart, it's, it's at the heart of a lot of the ways we interact with each other as a society. It's the kind of sticky stuff that allows us to kind of, you know, get along with each other. Um, and with all those kind of inherent tensions, it's, you know, do we have that resilience in communities to deal with tensions and difficulties when they arise? And, and um, when we think about cohesion, we think about it as both a state and a process. You know, so it's a bit like a garden that you can look at at any point in time and sort of measure and, and you know, and assess in terms of how well different plants are doing or how well, you know, the soil is. But it's also something that needs attention over time. You know, in order for social cohesion to flourish, you need to sort of pay attention to those factors that impact on social cohesion over time. It's, it's like a bank of local trust and social connection, which needs to be replenished if it's drawn upon. And it has been drawn upon mightily, I think, in the last year. Um, in those, those four areas, I guess it could be that there are four themes which emerge very strongly. One is place, so place really matters. You know, social cohesion is very different in different places. It's profoundly affected by demographics, you know, social economic history, even geography sometimes, you know, in that if you've got a six lane motorway dividing two communities, then they're not gonna have, they're not gonna have much interaction between each other. So I think place really matters. And in those six places, they all had developed a shared vision about that place, which said it's a really good place to live, work, raise your family, grow older in. And although they weren't, you know, they didn't shirk the challenges of those particular places, they, they really promoted and celebrated what's unique and positive about that locality, including the people, groups and communities that lived there. Um, secondly, they really focused on people. You know, they took a real strength-based approach. They saw local people as a place's biggest asset so they really promoted and encouraged all forms of social engagement by but by starting with the issues that people locally wanted to focus on and cared most about they emphasized engaging diverse voices groups and communities and they were also proactive in addressing any tensions and difficulties that arise and social mixing was embedded as a principle um you know from running programs on social mixing but it wasn't just about running social programs on social uh, programs on social mixing it was also about embedding them in procurement and commissioning processes and, and also engaging people in things like participatory budgeting and making decisions about what happened in their local community and i think in all of that you know the role of local leadership was absolutely crucial they framed a vision and communication in language that actively um, valued diversity and included everyone. So I think the third one was um, 
knowledge, I think local areas really um, focused on both understanding their, you know, understanding the kind of um, the data they had about their local communities, but they also kind of gathered local intelligence through often through a very competent and thriving VCS and network of trusted local interlocutors. And that provided them with really helpful information on how, how to shape and direct the programs. And underpinning that was a really deep analysis of how different local groups and communities were impacted by inequality. And the final thing is that they they did what they could to mitigate um, systemic inequality and some of the barriers to social cohesion. So um, I think we know that the pandemic has exposed some really fundamental inequalities and has impacted particular groups and communities disproportionately. And, you know, the inequality affects segregation in housing, education and some workplaces. Um, and these areas really did what they could to mitigate both the impact of segregation and also the impact of inequalities. Um, and I think those those things are really important in terms of improving cohesion and resilience. Thank you very much indeed, Joe. I mean, um, David, do you want to come back on 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 that, perhaps first of all? Yeah, no, what Joe's been doing is amazing, actually, because what we've missed for a long time is even though sort of cross-sectionally, lots of kind of data suggests this stuff's important, and what have you, but there, still, even now, there are very, very few intervention studies to say, what can you do about it? I've kind of said, you know, something which doesn't have a solution is, is not a policy problem, it's just a fact of life. So until someone like Joe comes along and says, if you do X, you can get Y, then you've got something to get your teeth into. You can take it to the Treasury and have an argument, right? And that just has often been lacking. I know there are people like um, Matt, uh, Leach at uh, Local Trust, who I think is thinking in this kind of way. Also, like, how do you turn that into a science? Like, how can you can, can you work out what we can do about it? So even just to rift off um, the, the list which Joe have used. So some of them, I mean, I, I of course, I, I agree. So very, very likely plausible. Some of them like place. The physical environment clearly affects, um, it's a, a very interesting literature about how it affects your relationship with your neighbours. So even... Um, Classic study by Wilmot on uh, Dagenham years ago um, showed that people who lived on the cul-de-sacs were much friendlier than people who lived on the through roads, right? And in fact, it's just true. The more traffic on a road, the less likely you are to know and get on with your neighbours for obvious sort of reasons. But it's quite hard to change all those things. You might be able to put in traffic calming or whatever. So what's especially interesting are the things which are relatively light touch. Um, and to me, the one that really stands out is that Attempts not only to have formal volunteering, but informal volunteering, ways in which, how do you know when and where you might help and support someone else? And that feels like that's sort of crackable. And even in a world where we have massive tech giants, like how does it help me know as to whether my neighbor two doors down actually needs something and I could easily do it and pick it up and help them in some way and create reciprocity? And even though there are lots of inequalities in this, and of course, lots of inequalities that also um, get in the way. So people from more, less affluent areas, for example, generally see their neighbours more, but trust them less, I'm afraid, um, maybe because of, you know, lots of factors that are in play there. But there is also an equality factor, which is that for most of us, whether we're rich or poor, we can be somewhat caring and thoughtful towards other people. It's not really about money. You know, and Edgar Kahn, when he did the work on time banks, he was really keen on the idea that actually everyone should sort of be equal. And when you try and do those sort of systems and respectfully. And I feel like that's one of the great opportunities is to try and 
that almost informationally crack that problem, like in a way that's not intrusive, to, to know a little bit more of the needs of those who are around you and to be able to help, but in ways which aren't intrusive. And, and little glimpses into that world, the things like, you know, a street bank emerged a few years ago, where like, why does everyone have a ladder? Why, like, what's the point of having a thrift or one of those weird things that chews up your branches? You know, you're going to use it once every two years. You know, we don't all have to have one. We, in principle, can solve that problem. Where, but if you trust your neighbors to share, but what happens on the back of that is it then, well, actually, very interesting generational effects, for example. So, um, you know, if you're a 25 year old, you generally know how to fix Zoom, right? But you have no idea how to fix a shelf because you don't know what a masonry fit is. So these feel, again, like they're crackable. Like, well, if you can hit me with my Zoom problem, I can fix your, your shelf because I know what a masonry pit is. And that by oiling the works of this sort of reciprocity and exchange, you can actually get the kind of magic, so, you know, the economy of regard, as it's sometimes known, working better. And bear in mind that it's not even captured in our numbers, right? We, we don't know. It's not in our GDP numbers when we go and help someone else. These acts of reciprocity, but as human beings, they are incredibly important. So I sort of feel like it's trying to bring together the world of tech and informational solutions to actually make us be a bit nicer to each other. And it goes also to Magda's point around the, the fluidity, I think, in some of these measures is because we just don't really know. We're actually very unsure about whether we can trust some of those around us, right? And again, behaviorally, what you tend to find is we, we overestimate the incidence of bad behavior in others, but sadly, we don't overestimate good behavior. So when we interact probably in the kind of schemes that Joe's describing, my guess a lot of people are pleasantly surprised that their fellow human beings are actually quite decent and helpful, you know? And so can, can we oil the works of that and have the kind of magnify those sort of pleasant surprises? And if we do it well, as I said, there's good grounds to think lots of other good things will follow as well. David, thank you for leading us down a very positive cul-de-sac and uh, having lived on a cul-de-sac, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, Magda, do you perhaps you want to, uh, to, to join in on this one? Um, yeah, if I can. <laughs> so um, I would just want to comment on a, a couple of things that both Joe and uh, David said. So um, in terms of, um, like, we know that social cohesion matters, but what can we do about it? Uh, so, like, I think some examples, like the National Citizens uh, Service, um, some studies did, like, uh, actual causal research that, uh, you know, being involved in some meaningful uh, work together where everyone is seen as equal partners and, you know, has positive impact um, over time. So, but I think in a kind of real life, everyday life, it's difficult to create these opportunities that easily that we all have like I don't know common goal in uh, in our community and that everyone feels like that they have equal say um, and equal power um, in terms of uh, what Joe said about the, um, some of the interventions I think related to in inclusiveness and diversity of voices in this uh, different communities um, uh, so I, I personally think, um, based on the groups that we saw that were experiencing decline in social cohesion, uh, at least at the points where we measured uh, we measured it, um, were some kind of atypical groups as well, like young people that we wouldn't necessarily 
usually think that they are the most vulnerable group. Um, and for example, older people, both in terms of perceptions of cohesion and mental health, uh, they were doing much better than we would expect, although they were the most vulnerable in terms of like health risks. So um, I think there are some non-obvious groups which are not included in um, in this community activities or were not traditionally included because they had their support networks elsewhere. Um, and now the support networks are gone and maybe these people don't uh, are not used to reaching out in the traditional way. So I think it's important to engage them somehow. And so like this mutual aid group that were popping up and they had websites uh, and you know you could find one in your local area. Um, but this again is kind of um, excluding those um, that are not digitally, uh, like, yeah, are not using internet or might not even have internet. Um, so for example, for me personally, a good example was uh, in my community, but I also seen it elsewhere, like simple things like putting leaflets to the door, just information that what is happening um, and that everyone will read because you pick it up and, and you kind of know. So I think important thing is kind of finding a way of engaging groups that are normally uh, not maybe most interested in community activities. And maybe uh, in the past there were not a big concern, but now they might be. Um, and one more thing, if I can, <laughs> in terms of uh, infrastructure. Um, I think, uh, again, from coming from more survey administrative data point of view, um, so what we saw in other uh, piece of research uh, was that, um, and another group in Birmingham University was finding as well, that the civil society infrastructure does matter as well. Of course, informal help matters enormously, uh, but it seems that uh, uh, like the density of formal civil society organizations um, is also um, correlated with many things, like with, uh, with helping, volunteering, uh, trust, uh, mental well-being. And uh, for example, the more deprived areas are sometimes like called um, civil society deserts, which probably is not true at all. But um, like some studies show that um, these organizations that operate there are usually like less well-funded, they dissolve more often. Um, and, uh, you know, this affects also like resources available. So I think, yeah, distribution of resources is also an issue. Thank you very much indeed, Magda. Also I need to say that Magda has to leave us slightly early. So uh, if you vanish, Magda, uh, we understand. And thank you very much for being with us. Perhaps we could just go um, to start to talk about um, tech. And, and David was talking about tech earlier on. What, one of the striking things uh, that came out uh, when Joe was talking about the importance of place uh, and indeed about the importance of cul-de-sacs, etc. cetera. Um, but equally, we're living in this digital age where a lot of people are connecting on, online and having forming new types of community. Uh, if we're trying to build up an infrastructure that really uh binds people together um how do we go about navigating the local i suppose with the with the global and the digital perhaps i could just throw that out there for comment shall i jump in if 
Um, Please do, David. So, yeah, I mean, there's a, a famous old result, which is um, the more friends you've got, the happier you are in real life, as it were. That is not true in relation to Facebook. There is no relationship to the number of friends you have on Facebook and your well-being. Um, so it's clearly a, a bit more complicated. There's also, by the way, I want to acknowledge there's a question in the chat around basically um, hierarchies and differences and the difference of made between so-called bonding social capital, you know, those who are close to you, um, similar to you, um, versus bridging social capital between social, you know, groups, power structures, etc. And clearly they matter. Both matter very greatly with slightly different things. Um, so how, how can you bring it together? I mean, to, to me, one of the canons of, of behavioral psychology is you obsess with friction. You're obsessed with making it easy, right? And what's the barriers to connect in useful ways or figure out. And what you normally find is a kind of version of the kind of frost poem, good fences make good neighbors. It's a pretty good place to start, right? Is it throwing people together and physical designs which make people interact aren't a formula for success per se, because you need to have some ability to choose who's. Actually, I'd love to talk to Joe, but maybe Joe doesn't really want to talk to me, right? How does that work? So physical environments can make that possible because they, but literally the water cooler in the office is an example of it, right? You can sort of see, and if Joe's there, oh, I'd really love to go and talk to Joe, but Ed's there, oh, which maybe I'll, I'll walk on by, you know, or whatever, or vice versa. <laughs> so the physical design can make that true, but you can do some of those things virtually where you can lower the frictions. And the, the real magic is you, you create, you, you lower, as it were, the friction to be able to interact with other people and exchange, but you don't force them into it, right? So to go back to a, maybe it's a stupid example, but, um, you know, when you just help people in the neighborhood about, you know, you want to borrow stuff or a ladder or paint something or a bit of kit, you often actually need to know how to use it as a skill. So you need a human being to tell you what to do with this piece of thing. But then who would, how do you know who's got those skills? So in Magnus, you might have, a, there's an old idea from Resnick a number of years, we should create neighborhood directories. And then you'd know who knew how to fix a shelf or whatever. But one idea was kicking around a few years ago is can you also multiply or amplify in some way? So if you take the big DIY chains to run with this example, are quite worried because it is literally generationally based and people who are below 40 don't know how to fix things and they're worried about it. But they also know, for example, Kingfisher, B&Q and so on, have a list of what 4 million diamond club card holders who are people who are over 60 who regularly go in there to buy stuff in a DIY store. That's several people on every street in Britain. How can you kind of, for people who want to, could you, could it be, you know, like you're a, you're a DIY first aider. Who is it? Who's on your, you know, as opposed to other kinds of help. Can you lower the frictions to know that in a way which is also not intrusive? So one of the things, of course, you see is things like Nextdoor, which may or may not evolve into the space, which are geographically based digital networks. And when they work well is they have a physical manifestation. So it's literally, to go to Magda's example, someone in the neighborhood is also printing things out and putting it through the box to keep everybody in touch. But then you have events or occasions or spaces within which you can opt into if you want to, but you don't have to. And if you start assembling these pieces and the various other elements which Joe talked about, there's good grounds to think actually you can change the trajectory of that sort of social connection, right? And anyway, well, we'll go more about it. But you can see literally at the national level, some countries have moved up and some have moved down in relation to their levels of social trust over the last 40 years. The UK has been one of the countries which has generally drifted down, but that's not inevitable. That is perfectly shapeable in my view. Joe, perhaps we could uh, go to you and just pick up on that. How, some of the, the 
the work you've seen, how much is there interaction between high tech and uh, and more traditional uh, community coming together? I think it's very it's I think it's very connected um, because um, you know people are often involved in their local Facebook groups and uh, or local you know local online groups. And actually, um, we've got several really good examples in our report about where tensions have and rumours have started online, but then the interventions have been a mixture of both online and offline, as in in real in person um, interventions. So I think I think the two aren't as sort of apart as we think of them as being because um, people do are part of these kind of more global kind of communities and groups, but also people are often part of a very local group or community. So I think there's a there's a lot of um, relationship between the two. Um, I just want to go back to what David was saying about volunteering, because um, one of our early papers, all in it, but not necessarily together, um, was able to look at the experiences of volunteers um, as opposed to everybody else. And um, volunteer, volunteers generally were having a much more positive <laughs> pandemic. You know, they were more positive, they were more connected, they had more trust locally. Um, and um, I think, you know, if we look at the number of people who volunteered, 12.4 million adults volunteered during the pandemic, of which 4.6 million were first-time volunteers, and with, with nearly four million of them interested in volunteering again. So I think that's an incredible sort of um, resource to draw on. And then just picking up on Magda's point about, you know, that volunteering is uneven and there's lots of barriers to volunteering. Um, some great examples in our policy and practice paper from the six local areas of where they have actively tried to increase volunteering in communities who traditionally were less likely to volunteer. So for example, Bradford has developed this whole citizen coin scheme um, and it offers um, residents an opportunity to exchange their time and skills for doing social good for citizen coins, which then can be spent at local Bradford district retailers. And I mean, apart from anything else, it's really boosted footfall and trade. And it's given people a real sense of pride and dignity in low income neighbourhoods where maybe traditionally residents have been shy and reluctant to rely on food banks, for example. So I think there are lots of kind of innovative examples of, um, you know, local schemes that we could really learn from in terms of boosting volunteering. And then the other thing to say about volunteering is that it's an absolutely brilliant way of meeting people, you know, and and. Um, you know, what we have to guard against, I think, in volunteering is or any form of, um, you know, developing stronger community connections. We have to guard against what what Dominic Abrams calls rivalrous cohesion, you know, which is where you increase your bonding social capital. But actually in areas where there's a high level of um, prejudice, either expressed or latent, then, you know, you're going to develop rivalrous cohesion and we, and we need to move towards harmonious cohesion where we both tackle prejudice and um, kind of stereotypes, but we also um, foster those strong social connections, which are bridging connections between groups. And volunteering can be a brilliant way of doing that. That's what you just commented on about different types of social cohesion. Actually, there's a question in from Mama D here, who says, what thought and action has gone into garnering different perspectives on social cohesion, including A, 
ideas of benefit, B, the sustainability of it, and C, how it affects resilience intergenerationally. Perhaps that should just get you to um, continue on what you were saying about the, the differences of, of social cohesion there and just sort of riff off that a bit. Well, I, I mean, you know, I think there are there, there are different ways of measuring it. So, um, you know, we've thought quite a lot about the difference between rivalrous cohesion and harmonious cohesion. And I think sometimes we don't pay enough attention to it. You know, there's a lot of talk about improving our social connections. But if we only improve our social connections with people who we think are, you know, like us or put us in our, our category, then we're not actually really strengthening social cohesion. So I think, you know, really, uh, we, we need to be strengthening those bridging connections. Um, and, you know, if you look at sort of disaster and um, crisis research, there are actually three types of connections that are really important in helping communities um, recover from disasters quickly. There's, there's, there's sort of bonding, bridging, and then there's linking, you know, can they get access to resources and, you know, and, and voice and power and how quickly can that happen? So I think we've, we've thought about it like that as well. And then in our report, we've really looked at it in terms of a social psychological model of social cohesion, which is looking at, you know, people's relation to the state. So we've measured um, levels of trust, um, both in national politicians, but also local politicians. And actually in our six local areas, there are much higher levels of local trust. And, in, and you can see that in the report in some of the ways that um, communities describe their local authority. It's almost as if the local authority is the community and the community is the local authority. So I think in some of those areas, they've had very high levels of trust. And then we also look at, um, you know, relations between individuals, groups and communities. So, you know, how much do people trust each other? How much do people connect with each other? You know, um, how much, how many um, friends or relationships do people have with people from kind of other groups? Um, and, and, you know, I, I agree that there needs, it's really important to have that element of choice in it. At the same time, I think that sometimes we design in for segregation. And we need to sort of think about that in terms of, you know, on a policy level, there are times when we design in for segregation. And it means, you know, that, for example, people with lower incomes don't aren't necessarily housed in the same neighbourhoods as people with higher incomes. You know, and all of those things affect a whole range of factors, things like social mobility, um, you know, um, prosperity. But all of those things are affected by that segregation. So we really need to think about when we're designing in for segregation, if inadvertently, you know, a great policy idea ends up doing that. And I think the local areas that we've worked in have really thought about that and really tried to mitigate those, um, you know, those, those kind of where segregation has, has ended up somehow being designed in. Thank you. David, do you want to say anything around that? Uh, yes, sure. Um, let me make just a couple of quick points. I mean, one of the, the cruel things about social capital is unevenly distributed, often correlating with other forms of capital, which Joe is alluding to. Um, and, you know, what a surprise, you know, you've got other, again, Putnam uses the phrase, you know, frankly, probably on this call, if our kids or those close to us are in difficulty, all kinds of airbags sort of pop it up to protect them in life, including our social networks and so on. And you don't destroy those, but some people don't have the same level. 
similarly, even charities, if you look at the distribution, it's not even, and you find areas which look like they're neighborhoods that don't seem to have anything else going on at all. So there is an unevenness to it. And the most difficult kind of social capital to build is the bridging social capital as well, ones which connect between different groups, right? Um, it's a bit more natural. We have done some work on it. We've actually done literal experiments. We, we took part in a wonderful body of work, Britain Connects, where we got people who had very different views. We managed to persuade, volunteered, is we're going to put you in contact with, have a conversation with someone who's really different, like a Brexiteer versus, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then we, we tried, you know, it's a bit like the old Monty Python sketch where you go to a menu, a, a restaurant, and there's a menu for the conversation. So we kind of gave people prompts about what you might want to just talk about. And of course, the thing that really works is not just the contact, but, but by encouraging people to talk about things, um, funny experiences or common experiences which they may have had in their lives, which then create a sense of connection as opposed to starting with how are they different. And we've seen the similar innovations we did around National Citizen Service, getting you know different kinds of icebreakers where you get kids to talk about what ways are they similar rather than different. And it can put you on a very different trajectory in the relationship. But the biggest thing that I think sits over us is why I think COVID is an interesting moment. As I said, it's obviously disrupted our lives in all kinds of terrible and unwelcome ways, but it's thrown the pieces in the air a bit. And even on the point about technology, I mean, years ago, um, like 20 odd years ago, Putnam, I remember, used the phrase, again, I'm using it because I think such an important figure in the area, but about with the internet and social media, would it be a fancy telephone to connect us more or would it be a fancy TV to isolate us more? And of course, it's exactly got both those capabilities in it. And if you zoom right up, one of the stories that they kind of literally at the national level. So while Bob was documenting bowling alone and so on in the US, and we had some of the same to a lesser extent in the UK, countries that are drifting towards slightly lower levels of social trust and social capital. There are countries which have gone the other way, particularly some of the Nordic countries, where you've seen increases in social trust and so on, and some communities too. And in the end, it's a bit of a choice which we collectively make, which is how do we use our wealth and our capacities? Do we use them to escape from the inconveniences of having to deal with other people? Or do we use them to kind of connect more and join book clubs and go out and, you know, it's kind of in our hands, although being a kind of equilibrium way. It's a big choice for us all. And the last thing I just make kind of connected a beautiful body of work from people like Catherine Dunn and, um, in Canada. Well, she took students and she said, if I give you $20, what would make you happier? If you spend it, Ed, spend it on it yourself, make, get a really nice treat for yourself, or if you spend it on someone else, right? And students were asked to sincerely make the prediction. And the majority of students thought, well, um, if I spend it myself, I'll feel happier. I can rely on that. But then she literally gives people $20 and either says, spend it on yourself for a treat or spend it on someone else for a treat. And then she sees who's happier afterwards. Well, you can kind of guess what the answer is. People are much happier when they spent the money on a treat for someone else. But they predicted sincerely they'd make themselves happier spending it on themselves. So at the heart of it, there is a kind of important thing about these sort of conversations, which is for us to be more self-aware about the choices we have, but then also then choose the path, right? Can we do more of what Joe's talking about in our societies and our lives, or can we not? It's up for grabs. We're running out of time, so I'd like to ask you both uh, one final question, which is uh, coming from uh, anonymous attendee who's asked, in five years' time, what do you think successful post-coronavirus social cohesion will look like? So in five years' time, what do you think successful post-coronavirus social cohesion will look like? 
like. So anyone like to kick off? Magda wants to go first if she needs to drop out anyway. Hey, are you still with us, Magda? You are? Yes, yes I am. Um, I mean, that, that is a really tough question. Um, but uh, can I just go back to the bonding, bridging, linking? Um, I think, um, like, one for me interesting thing is that those connections and those self-help um, initiatives that we've seen, we kind of don't know whether they were based on the existing connections in the majority or they were formed new ones. And um, in terms of bridging, I, I, I agree that it's extremely important, but I'm also um, a little bit skeptical of the boxes that we usually use, that a lot of this is based on ethnicity or mixing minority and majority. Um, and I think sometimes we don't pay enough attention to um, yeah, different sociodemographic aspects, uh, age, gender, income levels, etc. Um, and uh, I think we also don't pay enough attention to the linking one. So we can have uh, a mix, mixing between different groups in a community, but if those groups still don't have access to those in power, then yeah, some, the link is broken. So I think coming back to the actual question, uh, in the ideal world, um, we would have um, probably more inclusive communities that are actually working in real partnership with um, with local decision makers. So, um, and are inclusive of, uh, yeah, um, across age groups, across um, um, socioeconomic or ethnicity lines. But it's a super gener generic answer, but I'm afraid I don't have a, a better one at the moment. That's pretty good. Joe, perhaps you'd like to respond. Uh, I, I'd like to see national and local leadership that prioritises social connection in all four nations of the UK. I think there's a need for commitment at all levels of government um, for this, because I think it's so vital and at the heart of basically how we exist as a society. I think people more set, need more say in the decisions that affect them and they and we also need to learn to disagree better without harming that underlying social fabric that knits us all together. Um, I think people need to be able to communicate better with each other um, and I think you know nobody should be prevented from connecting with others because they can't speak English, they lack functional literacy or because they don't have the infrastructure or skills to connect online. You know, I think we we should we should be building the digital infrastructure. I mean, that was that was really exposed during the pandemic. Um, you know, kind of families of six with one laptop between them trying to homeschool, for example. Um, I think we do need to take action to support volunteering and to keep those new volunteers and to encourage it as a as sort of well both as a social good but also something that you almost do automatically um and i think we really need to encourage that um culture of hospitality hospitality and kindness and tackle things like hate crime and encourage inclusive citizens citizenship and welcome new arrivals um who move either into our communities from elsewhere in the uk or or overseas and I, I i mean i do think we need to encourage all forms of bridging and i mean think of belong we're really clear it's not just about ethnic and faith divides and i think in the past 
Um, people have tended to, to overfocus on that, but it is just as much about age. I mean, you know, generations are more divided than they've ever been before, uh, and class. You know, social classes are more divided. We're divided by educa educational attainment and income, and so I think we need to think about kind of you know stepping across and making a commitment to bridging some of those um, disconnections. Thank you very much indeed, Joe. David, in essence, um, I'm this. Good news, bad news. I'll do the bad news first, right? Which is that despite there's quite a popular narrative, which we've all got much more cohesive over the last 14 months, for the most part, the data suggests we've gone on a bit of a roller coaster and we aren't actually necessarily more cohesive. Um, what, what happens is that it took totally key issues. Is that kind of up for grabs? So I think you had to say the most likely default is, as Joe said, the underlying forces which are pulling us apart are fragmenting our societies on many dimensions are quite strong and they're quite ubiquitous. So if we don't do something active about it, the likely story in five years' time will be will be more disconnected. That just seems to be that's what the numbers are telling you at the moment. On the other hand, we've just been through a very, very big collective experience together, and we could do something about it. And what will be the legacy? I mean, a lot of people were very struck by, I certainly was, and lots of other people, that incredible goodwill. I mentioned that volunteering, you know, the number of people who wanted to volunteer, and the system literally didn't know what to do with them. It just didn't, we haven't built systems which are designed to receive and do something with it, you know. And I felt for a long time, because we had big society was, a, was an attempt which got into some difficulty, but try and do something about that. Which is, well, can we design institutions, which are actually not just about volunteering, but I would introduce another concept, which is reciprocity. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's even more basic in some ways. People have a strong desire to try and help and support each other and to reciprocate. Can you amplify that rather than, in general, it will tend to decay over time? So if, we go, if you've gone through a healthcare setting and you've recovered from long term condition, why wouldn't we say to people, would you like to help someone else in a similar situation? We literally haven't built our institutions to reinforce that kind of reciprocity. And I think we could do, right, as absolutely up for grabs, which would then kind of set us on a subtly different trajectory. And I think an altogether nicer one. I'd much rather be in a world where we do know a little bit more about the people around us and a little bit of kind of reciprocity and care is in place, right? And we could dial it up. Um, I don't want to have to interact with all my neighbours all the time, but I think it is possible to find a pathway between those if we have the wit and wisdom to do it. That's brilliant. Thank you very much, Dave. I can see a follow-up dialogue and debate on the golden rule due to others as you have done to you. I think it's a really, really interesting area. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining us today. If you'd like to get alerts about forthcoming webinars, you can sign up on the Keep in Touch page of our website or simply by emailing us at inquiries at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. And our dialogue and debate webinars generally take place at 11 a.m. on the first Wednesday of each month. Uh, next month, we'll be digging deeper into a key theme of our latest report, which is called Faith and Belief 2040. In particular, we're going to be drilling down look on the issue of the use of religious buildings in the UK and the role that they can play in building social cohesion. Just before I, like, I say goodbye, I'd like to highlight that, that like all charities, Cumberland Lodge is facing difficult times financially during the pandemic. If you've enjoyed today's webinar and would like to support our work, we'd be very grateful if you consider making a small donation. You can do so online via our Just Giving page. and We'll put the link up immediately after the webinar. Thank you everyone for uh, taking part today and especially to our wonderful panelists, to Joe, Magda and David. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>